It's been called the greatest of comedy musical fantasies. A stunning fairy tale. A delight for children and a rare treat for the young at heart. Good Times Home Video presents the comic genius of Laurel and Hardy in the 1934 Hal Roach musical comedy classic, March of the Wooden Soldiers. And now, for the first time ever on home video, witness the spectacle, glamour, and grandeur of Toyland and your favorite Mother Goose characters as they come to life in beautifully colorized splendor. What do you think of that? March of the Wooden Soldiers is the newest release in Good Times Home Video's Platinum Series. Based on Victor Herbert's Broadway stage triumph, Babes in Toyland, this fountain of fantasy captures his stirring musical melodies to perfection. What is the matter, little Bo Peep? I have been careless and lost my sheep. So turn back the pages of Life's Storybook and revel in this fabled adventure. It's a simple tale of the old woman, Widow Peep, who lived in a shoe. Her daughter, the shepherdess, Bo Peep, who's in love with Tom Tom, the piper's son. Of Silas Barnaby, the meanest man in Toyland, out to get them all. And, of course, Oliver D. and Stanley Dumb, the toy maker's apprentices, who, along with their friends, save everyone from the evil clutches of Barnaby and his bogeyman. It's one hilarious event after another with a bumbling duo in the kingdom of Toyland. The Antics of Laurel and Hardy. Victor Herbert's Magical Melodies. A feature film treasure. March of the Wooden Soldiers, in color. Hello everybody and welcome to Is It Yours, the movie review program where we take all movies, new, classic, great, not so great, whatever they may be, and place them up against the Jaws scale to see where they land. I'm Paul Spataro and this week I am joined by one of my favorite couples out there in the podcasting world. In fact, in the podcasting world I would say absolutely my favorite couple, uh, Darren and Ruth Sutherland. Thank you. <laughs> that was really kind of you. Thank you, Paul. Well, it's it would it would be less it would be more kind if it if it wasn't true. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's easy to say things that happen to be reality. Mm. But uh, Darren and Ruth have definitely got some similar uh, tastes with with myself as far as older movies and swashbuckling movies. I think are two things that we definitely have in common. And this is an older movie I wanted to do specifically for Thanksgiving, so I decided to reach out to them, and they were very happy to, to grab this one with me. So thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, this We're going to do the 1934 classic, and it depends on where, where you've gotten to know it from as far as the title, because I always knew it as March of the Wooden Soldiers, but the original title of it is Babes in Toyland, the Laurel and Hardy classic. And... As we were talking about before we started actually recording this episode, to me, this is a Thanksgiving classic because every year on Thanksgiving, in the morning, before we would go wherever we were going to spend our Thanksgiving holiday, whether it was home or somebody else's house, but before the holiday really got rolling, this would be on in the morning and I would watch it every year. And usually I would watch it with my brothers and my sister because we all enjoyed it. 
And so to me, this is a staple of Thanksgiving, even though it takes place at Christmas time. And I'm curious as to you two and when you had your earliest memories of it and what your, uh, you know, what your take is on it. Very good, Paul. My take on it is uh, very similar to yours. This was a movie, not necessarily, I don't remember it always as Thanksgiving, but it did air almost annually on local television stations where I grew up. It would always be a Saturday or a Sunday matinee during the holiday season. So between Thanksgiving and Christmas, I would get to see it almost every year as I was growing up as a kid. So for me, it was one of those perennial holiday classics that I looked forward to. Being a Laurel and Hardy fan uh, through for all of their movies, it was just wonderful to know that you would have that at least once a year opportunity to get to see the two of them because you know they weren't on TV as much as the Three Stooges when I was growing up. But I always got to see this one, and it was very special to me. I hadn't seen it in a long, long time, so I loved the invitation for you to get a chance to record this because it gave us a chance to watch the movie again. And for you, me... Ruth? I missed out on this, so I don't know what I was doing watching around the holidays, but I never came across it as a kid, so it was something that got introduced to me much, much later. Yeah, it's interesting. Ruth was talking about her parents didn't watch a lot of television when she was growing up. They were all, it was a book family, Ugh. so uh, <laughs> yeah, she didn't get to see this. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's funny, uh, you know, I, I was, uh, do you ever see, there was a, an HBO series in the 1980s called Dream On? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, we and, love and, that show. And the opening to that show would be they would show like the little baby being plopped down in front of the TV set. And then they would uh-huh. show him as a little boy watching TV. And then you know, it would be basically <laughs> like through his life. And he was constantly planted in front of the TV set. And I always said that was me. <laughs> That's a really good description. Uh, we both enjoyed that show. We watched it regularly. And I know exactly sort of where you're coming from. Because I was an only child and I lived in a small town. There weren't even other kids near us. So... Both of my parents worked, and I would come home and watch television after school. So, yeah. Yeah, well, I was one of four, but I was introduced to a lot of different things by my elder siblings. So, this, like, again, this was one of them. And I guess I should just briefly hit on the plot to this movie. Uh, and I, as I was saying to Darren and Ruth, this is a very long synopsis on uh, Wikipedia. So, I'm just going to kind of give my synopsis off the top of my head. The movie takes place in Toyland, which is effectively uh, the world of nursery rhymes. Little Bo Peep, Mother Goose, uh, Jack and Jill, uh, the Three Little Pigs, all all sorts of characters of that nature are existing in this land. And Stan Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy are uh, Stanny D and Ollie Dumb. And they they live in, uh, in the old woman's shoe from nursery rhymes and that they're boarders there and somehow they run afoul of uh, Barnabas the two, the two of them actually work in the toy factory where they make toys uh, on commission for Santa and Santa ordered 600 one foot toy soldiers wooden soldiers <laughs> and Stan took the order and messed it up and they made 100 six foot tall wooden soldiers mm-hmm. which gets them fired from their jobs <laughs> and uh, again, they run afoul of Barnabas, who has the uh, mortgage on the shoe that they live in. And somehow, through a quirk of fate, it ends up that uh, that Oliver Ali is going to get uh, in trouble for stealing the mortgage and gets accused of killing 
one of the three little pigs. <laughs> but they get out of it by Stan agreeing to... Uh, but, well, it's actually by little Bo Peep agreeing right. to marry Barnabas. But Stan then disguising himself as little Bo Peep and marrying Barnabas, which <laughs> brings rise to the classic line that uh, he couldn't go home with him because he doesn't love him. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, eventually Barnabas' true colors come out and he brings out the bogeymen from bogeyland to attack Toyland. And the residents of Toyland take up arms to fight off the bogeymen, but they're, while they're valiantly fighting, they're not quite handling it all until Stan and Ali remember the wooden soldiers who they activate, and the wooden soldiers effectively come to life and defend Toyland, uh, all the while playing a, a rollicking march which I assume is actually from Victor Herbert's operetta that this is based on. Uh, and that ends the movie with the soldiers coming out victorious. Now, as a kid watching this, and it's going to be interesting because I'm wondering, Darren, if your take is the same. And I'm wondering, Ruth, how your take is altogether since you didn't get to see it till you were an adult. But as a kid watching this every year, I always waited with bated breath for the wooden soldiers to come to life. I waited for that moment when they pressed the button on the first back and you'd hear that clicking sound and the music would start playing and then the soldiers would go marching and, and take care of everything and it would give me goosebumps. <laughs> and that was what I waited for. The rest of the movie was all fine, but that was what I waited for. Then as an adult, when I started watching it, I found myself much, much more enthralled with the comedy of Laurel and Hardy and how they, mm. their, their comic timing and just the jokes that they were throwing out. And then the, the, the soldiers was always still fun for me, but it was more of an afterthought. That's a really nice uh, description there, Paul. First, I want to commend you on your summary from memory because that was really a nice, concise uh, summary of it. But uh, I like this thing about the wooden soldiers because I know I agree with you about that anticipation of them. And even as we were rewatching it yesterday in advance of recording this, I was, uh, when it got near the end and it was approaching that scene, I, I was on the edge of my seat waiting for them to queue up the wooden soldiers. And I was surprised how long it took them to remember to do that or to think to do that because they spend all that time with the darts. And I was mm -hmm. like, oh, remember the wooden soldiers. And uh, so I, I could even imagine that that was part of me, the nostalgia from seeing it as a little kid, that anticipation was still there. And I was surprised how they sort of, you know, strung it out a little bit, which, of course, Lawler and Hardy were known for with their humor. But, uh, yeah, I think I must have a very similar memory to you. And I would say, have watching it as an adult, what struck me, and I'm a longtime Laurel and Hardy fan, just the humor and the wit with some of the visual gags and the clever lines throughout the movie is what appealed to me. Uh, but when the toy soldiers were activated, I thought, oh, this is so clever. It ties in with you know something that was a blunder actually being helpful in the end. So I like that twist and that aspect of them. Yeah, Stan saved the day in the end without realizing it. And I just want to mention something you hit on there too, Paul, with the title, because just, just like you said, you know, Babes in Toyland was the original title, but I much prefer the retitled March of the Wooden Soldiers. I think it's much more descriptive of the plot of the movie and what the movie's about, as opposed to Babes in Toyland, which fit the sort of plot of the original musical but 
they didn't use that plot in the movie, and I think March of the Wooden Soldiers is a much better title for the movie, so I like that title a lot. Right. From my understanding, and I'm not that familiar with the source material, uh, but from my understanding is uh, they they took tremendous liberties with it in order to get uh, Laurel and Hardy involved in it at all. Yeah, that's uh, I, I have the same understanding. I know that they took the, it's sort of basically the, the set pieces and the costumes and the music are from the musical, inspired by the musical, but the plot itself is basically completely new, which isn't surprising, and it was insisted on by Stan Laurel. He was always the guy behind Laurel and Hardy's comedies. He was the one who was, you know, ghostwriting most of their stuff or rewriting the things that he didn't write to begin with, and he was basically the uh, director, even though there were other credited directors, and it was the same thing with this movie. He very much took charge and insisted on changes and made it their movie, their way, instead of what was originally there. Now, I remember in the 1980s, and it's just because I was when I was thinking about doing this movie with you guys, it, it brought back memories of it. In the 1980s, there was a very, very strange rumor going around that people were insisting Stan Laurel was Clint Eastwood's father. Do you, do you remember hearing <laughs> that ever? <laughs> no. <laughs> I hadn't heard that. And, oh, it's now, it just immediately flashes in my mind seeing their faces side by side, though. <laughs> yeah, well, it turns out it's not, the, not a fact, but just the same. Uh, this movie was my introduction to Laurel and Hardy. Hmm. I don't think I ever saw them in anything before I saw this. And as I said, as a kid... I was entertained by them, but I wasn't enthralled by them. I was enthralled by the Wooden Soldiers. Mm -hmm. So it took until I was probably in my mid-teens or so to start saying, hey, you know what? Those two guys are pretty funny in this. And then I started seeking out shows or movies that they were in to watch. And then I became much more familiar with their, you know, their, their entire uh, catalog of movies or or much more likely a lot of their shorts mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and very entertained by them and how they worked together. I mean, they did have tremendous comic timing together. I, I really like you sharing that, Paul. I mean, that's very uh, interesting for, you know, a teenager to seek out and find them on their own. I know, uh, you know, that's just great. That just, uh, to me, you know, uh, shows how insightful you are in looking for things out of the mainstream. For me, I had a father. A lot of my uh, interest in Laurel and Hardy and, and some other classic comedians came from my father because they were the things that he grew up watching. And I know he would seek those out. You know, he would get the TV out every week and scour through and look for things. So I had been fortunate to get to see Laurel and Hardy shorts on occasionally, on occasion, and movies on occasion, you know, just thanks to him to finding the obscure times and channels that happened to show them once in a blue moon. So I, I was familiar with them from their shorts and knew, you know, those, which, you know, those are 20 minutes long. They're very much packed with their sense of humor. So that's what I was used to. And Babes in Toyland, uh, March of the Wooden Soldiers, I sort of came to later. And it was, you know, when they were on screen, that was always my favorite parts. The, the set designs and, you know, the, the fairy tale nature of it's really interesting and exciting, but anytime Laurel and Hardy were on screen, that's when I was always happiest. Yeah, well, I, I, like I said, as as an as an older viewer, I definitely felt felt that way. As a kid, 
not quite as much. But <laughs> I, what I always found just as an interesting point was apparently once Oliver Hardy passed away, Stan Laurel refused to ever be in anything again. Mm. That's he, really he, I like he valued that. their partnership to such an extent that he didn't want to he didn't want to be seen as the aging guy who was just hanging on to a career. You know, he, he, he valued that partnership that he wanted to be remembered as being part of that, you know, golden age of comedy. I'm really glad you shared that. I hadn't heard that myself. I knew both of them, you know, suffered from failing health in their later years. And it is just wonderful. I mean, you look at Hal Roach, who, you know, the, the two of them didn't come together as a comedic team on their own. Hal Roach saw them separately in individual things, and he's the one who thought to put them together. And they clicked together immediately and, you know, stayed together the whole rest of their careers. And to me, they are wonderful together. They complement each other on screen and they obviously complemented to eat each other behind this uh, behind the camera as well, because, you know, Oliver was much was very happy to let Stan take creative control and Stan liked that creative control. And Oliver Hardy was more than happy to do whatever Stan thought of. And uh, it's nice to know that I hadn't heard that, so I appreciate you sharing it. They had, just talking about them a little bit, they had what I would consider to be a non-traditional comic partnership. Because in that day and age, the partnerships, you know, the normal way of things would be you'd have the comic guy and the straight man. And they were kind of really two comic guys. And they would play off each other. I mean, I guess if you had to force them into the, you know, force a a square peg into a round hole, Oliver Hardy was the straight man. But not really. Yeah, you're Um, right. Not really. I mean, so many of the visual gags and, you know, the painful looking visual gags were at his expense. mm -hmm. So, yeah, they, they were both comedians. I mean, they were both the comic men, just like you said, very different approaches to the humor, but... Again, that's why they complimented each other. And they they both had a way, which I, I really appreciate, of doing verbal comedy as well as visual comedy. You know, they, they could they could do the, the you know the pratfalls and and the you know the the very very uh, overreacting type things. Oliver Hardy was great at that. <laughs> uh, but they could also do some some verbal sparring back and forth. That would be at a, at a just kind of a, a a higher intelligence level than just slapstick, and I, and I always enjoyed that aspect of it. And I thought there was a lot of that in in this movie, even uh, when they're talking to the toy the the toy master, uh, when they're just talking to each other about you know peewees and stuff like that. <laughs> uh, just just so many little things in this, and it has one of those things where. Well, one of the, it's one of those movies where if you sat and read the script of the lines, mm-hmm. they're not nearly as funny as when delivered by the two of them. <laughs> right. That's so true. And again, your descriptions are just perfect because I just look at the two of them and, and think about what you were saying. And you're absolutely right. That's the reason they successfully transitioned from silent films to talkies because they were silent film stars first. And yet they made that seamless transition to talkies because... They could do the visual and they could do the verbal. So as soon as talkies came, they they fit right in still. And um, you just mentioning how s- sort of smart their humor is, 
again, I just think back to Stan Laurel, who ran the writer's uh, room for all of their films and shorts. And it was one of those things where, you know, he basically ran it as like a chaotic competition with the writing staff that he worked with of, you know, who can one up whatever somebody else just did. And that was, you know, the way he did it. And you see that in, in their films because you think a joke is over and they'll turn around and there'll be more to it after that. And you just don't see it coming. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to go back, backtrack a little bit because I'm just curious. I'm, and I'm a little surprised, honestly, that uh, knowing that you're both big fans of older movies, I'm a little surprised that, Ruth, that you didn't see this as a kid at all. So, how, like, were you in your 20s when you first saw it? Or, you know, how did you come about seeing it? Oh, I think... Probably from me. Yeah, probably Darren <laughs> had it, came across it on television. And, I, and I've always been a Laurel and Hardy fan, so I've always watched, you know, shorts and different movies. So it just must have been a matter of, of when it was airing on television sometime later well, as an adult. Yeah, it was one of those scenes when, you know, when it would have been on TV on the weekends, you were a, a little kid at that point in time, and that's when your parents weren't watching right. television much, but... Probably by the time you and I were dating and you were a teenager, I was we would watch the Honeymooners together and the Three Stooges and Laurel and Hardy and stuff like that. So that's probably mm -hmm. when you would have seen it the first time. Just too long ago for me to remember clearly. <laughs> uh, that was just two years ago. Oh. Ruth. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you. That's the right thing. So, to say. so now, do you, I mean, do you remember your initial reaction seeing it? Like, you know, did was it a, a case of oh, this is funny, or was it? How did I not see this until now? Or this is, you know, everything they said it is, or it's not everything they say it is. You know, what was your initial reaction when you first saw it? I loved the humor in it, and I was impressed by kind of the sets and the imagination and the links they went to um, just in creating the atmosphere for the, the show. I was surprised by the musical aspect of it, so I wasn't prepared or expecting, you know, people to break out in songs. I didn't quite know that it would be a musical uh part to the show and but really enjoyed the humor of it and even the things they went to like um the mouse <laughs> that was really a, a monkey or <laughs> in the suit <laughs> it's like thinking of the links they went to with having all of their limitations for special effects so it's mm -hmm. like wow and that they really had like the crocodiles alligators yeah. in the in the water later like it's like wow right. they really went to that much effort to have have those creatures there oh, that and i've always said that if i had seen this as a child i would have been frightened so i think um silas would have scared me and of course all of the bogeyman creatures that come out and chase and are chasing all of the fairy tale citizens i think that would have been very scary to me as a kid and especially just i uh, think about it because the DVD version that we watched yesterday actually has, it's a beautiful re restoration job that they did, but they also colorized it. So it's in color. I, I hadn't seen it in color before. And that's, I'm just thinking back to what Ruth was saying about how it can look scary because in the original black and white, you know, the bogeyman scenes and the scenes in bogey land, those can look really scary for a kid, but not quite so much in color. They look a little bit more colorful. They make the bogeyman sort of green. And yeah, I, I do remember as a young kid watching it and being not necessarily like it wasn't the stuff that nightmares were made of, mm 
Mm. But being kind of on the edge of my seat, you know, like biting my fingernails when they're down in bogey land, like very nervous about the mm-hmm. whole thing. Mm. Uh, and then again, when, when they start banding together and rising up against the bogeymen, there, there's this just feeling of just euphoria almost that you have <laughs> as a kid. Uh, you know, and it's just great. There's so many little touches in there. Now, you know, I would have to add in there, if, you, if you're a viewer, especially if you're a younger viewer, uh, and you haven't seen this movie, uh, while I would give it the highest possible recommendation, if you're looking for exceptional, exceptional cinematography or exceptional special effects, uh, you're not going to find it here. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. It's a 1934 low-budget you know, movie, and it's not really going to do too much for you. But if you're just looking for story and for little touches in there, little things thrown in that are... Uh, you know, just to, that are going to just make you smile. It's loaded with them. The whole thing going through Toyland and everything is great. Uh, when when they start fighting up against against the bogeymen, uh, you, you have the little mouse who goes into the uh, the zeppelin. Yes. And he's flying, dropping bombs on on the bogeymen, and and it's you know, and all they do is like little explode that makes them like jump a little. I mean, it's not you know, there's no carnage going on. Or, or when. Uh, when the three little pigs start like taunting the bogeyman, and then as the bogeyman would chase them, two two of the pigs would hold out a rope to trip yeah. him. Yes. And then the third little pig would run back in with like a balloon on a string and whack him in the head with it. Right. I mean, it's as silly as can be, but it's just, I, if if it doesn't bring a smile to your face, there's something wrong with you. I'm sorry. Uh, that's a, great stuff. That's a good summary of it, again, Paul, because. You're absolutely right. This movie is charming, is the word I might use for it. And for someone like me, and it sounds like for you too, there's a lot of nostalgia to it. It's not like it's a fantastic film. It's not Laurel and Hardy's best movie by any stretch. And, you know, you see other movies like maybe The Wizard of Oz can certainly outdo it as far as set pieces and costumes are concerned. But this is a charming, sweet little family movie that just, you know, makes you feel good as you watch the whole thing. And, the imagination of it's really great. I, I like the sort of mashup of all the different fairy tales and how they all sort of live close together. And it's a nice set design, but it's definitely very limited. Basically, you've got one big set with uh, Toyland and one big set with Bogeyland, and that's just about it. Now, you know, you hit on an interesting point, Aaron, where you said it's probably not their best movie. Mm. And I often talk about how I view movies as a viewer. And sometimes when I view movies for the sake of doing this, I try to view them as a critic. Mm. And viewing this as a critic, I have to agree with you, it's probably not their best movie. Maybe, I'm trying to think, maybe Sons of the Desert, maybe, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I'm trying to think of what else Dick, what else would be at that level. Yeah, well, you certainly named the one that uh, I think most any critic would consider to be their best, yeah. But I have to say... And, and not to give away my my rating just just yet, this is this is my favorite. Whether whether or not it's their best, this is my favorite. And if I were on my way to a desert island and they said, you know, you can only bring one Laurel and Hardy movie, I guarantee you, this is the one I'm bringing. Oh, that's sweet. <laughs> and I do think, and I think you know, you, you mentioned that for it too, that this is a sweet movie, and I I I do think it is. I think it's 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 very. It's a comforting movie. This this is like mm. com- the 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 movie version of comfort food. Mm-hmm. I, I I can watch this and it's no matter what's going on in my life, it's going to bring a smile to my face. Uh, 
you know, it's probably something I should just l- kind of leave out. And anytime I'm just angry at the world, just put it on. Ah, uh, that's a great endorsement. Yeah, I like that. It very much so. You just uh, you warm my heart saying all that, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> we uh, we talked. You know, we've talked at length a little bit about Laurel and Hardy. I'd like to just talk a little bit about the supporting cast. And I have to tell you, Laurel and Hardy carry the movie. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say that. I'm not. I'm not going to. You know, the other roles are important in bringing the story along. But if you took Laurel and Hardy out of this movie, this would not be the classic that it is to me. Agreed. It's, it's as simple as that. But I guess the next key role in the movie uh, would be Barnaby, who's played mm-hmm. by Henry Brandon. And he's great in this. He's, mm-hmm. just, he's terrific. He, he's, he's very much over the top, very, uh, very mustache twirling in everything he does in this movie. Uh-huh. But... I'm curious, do either of you know him from anything other than this movie? I don't think I do. He made a great villain here. Did you recognize him, dear? No, honestly, I would say I don't. He absolutely is fantastic in this role. He comes in, the music changes when he comes in, and he just, you know, chews the scenery, as they say. And uh, But I don't know him from anything else. Do you? There's, There's only one other thing I remember him from, and that was an episode of The Little Rascals, or Our Gang. Mm-hmm. Where Alfalfa signs a contract to sing opera, <laughs> and he is the uh, the opera guy, <laughs> the, the manager of the opera company or whatever, who signs uh, Alfalfa to the contract, and he has to sing the Barber of Seville. Oh, I remember that one now. <laughs> and and it, he wants then it, then it turns out instead of doing that, he wants to croon. But he has a contract that says he has to sing the Barber of Seville. So that's all I remember it from. But he's he's virtually the same character <laughs> Okay. in that episode as this. And that's the only thing I specifically remember him from. I, cl- I, I uh, cl- uh, clicked on him on Wikipedia. And it looks like the next biggest movie he was in was Bo Jest. Oh, okay. I don't know how big his part was in that. And I'm just looking over. He, I mean, he has a... As, as did many of the uh, actors of that era, he has a huge filmography. Mm. Uh, and just looking, this apparently was his second movie. Oh, wow. So wow. He, he lived until 1990. He was in, I'm just looking for recognizable names here. Uh, he was in the Corsican Brothers, mm-hmm. which was a... Uh, trying to think of who was, I, I, I remember that as a kid but I can't right, me too. any details he was in a Tarzan movie mm. he was in The Pale Face which is a uh, Bob Hope movie uh-huh. uh, The Searchers he played an Indian in The Searchers <laughs> wow he was in The Ten Commandments oh wow played Commander of the Hosts whoever that is I don't I couldn't couldn't tell you but uh, he was in the original To Be... Or, oh, no, he was in the remake, the Mel, Mel Brooks version of To oh, Be Oh, the Mel Brooks one. Nice. We get to see that in December on the big screen. Oh, do you? Okay. Yeah. So then now you know to look for him. He played a Nazi officer. All right. So it sounds like he was certainly a, a well-working character actor for decades. That's fantastic. Yeah, apparently He's, he was. Yeah, he does a great job in this role. I mean, just like you said, Laurel and Hardy carry this whole film. When they're on screen, the the whole film just livens up and lurches forward. But he does an equally great job because 
you need a good villain for this movie to work, and he delivers. Absolutely. He's after Laurel and Hardy, he's the most memorable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it just interesting perspective for me on this is he was born in 1912, which oh. means in 1934, when this movie came out, he was 22 years old. Oh, wow. wow. <laughs> they made him up really yes, well. Yeah, either that or he just was a very old looking guy. Yeah. Wow. yeah I mean, he looks, you know, like he's 55 right. to 60 easily. And uh, yeah, that's really interesting. I just, um, I was just trying to remember the line. There's a hilarious line that little Bo Peep has when she is refuting his, um, she's refuting his marriage proposal. I know what it is. I wrote it down. Let me get it. Okay. This was one of my favorite lines that she had. Um, I wouldn't marry you if you were young, which you aren't. If you were kind, which you never were. Or if you were going to die tomorrow, which is too much to hope for. <laughs> yes. I love that, that so much. That's probably the funniest line in the movie that's not a Laurel and Hardy line. And she delivers it well. And it's a perfect description of him. You just hear that and you think, wow, that was spot on and really mean. <laughs> <laughs> that, and and she, like you said, she delivers it really well because it's full of emotion when she says mm-hmm. that. Now, she's played by Charlotte Henry, mm. who I am otherwise unfamiliar with. It says, according to Wikipedia, because I'm just clicking on them as we go along, best remembered for her roles in Alice in Wonderland from 1933, mm. Babes in Toyland, and she also starred in the Frank Buck serial Jungle Menace. Mm. So now she was born in 1914, so she was virtually the same age wow. as Barnabas at that time. <laughs> Amazing. Great and makeup job. she had a much smaller filmography. There's about mm. one, two. I'd say maybe 20 movies on her filmography in total. Okay. Well, there, oh, actually, it does say partial filmography, so mm. she, may, she may have had bit parts and some more. Uh, you know, she, I think she played the part fairly well. I think mm-hmm. she got across exactly what she was supposed to. Right. Uh, the next person on my list I'm not quite as kind about is Felix Knight as Tom Tom Piper. Mm-hmm. I felt he was just a little bit too boyish mm. uh, I, I think I think the role called for him to be just a little just slightly more macho than he was <laughs> in the part because he, he didn't seem like the type who could stand up to Barnabas I agree with that me. it didn't seem like the type that could survive on his own in Boogie Land either yeah. exactly so she I, has I to come and rescue him <laughs> I would have liked to have seen that as just a you know somebody just a little bit tougher seeming. I don't know. Mm. On the other hand, he's supposed to play Tom Tom the Piper's son, so I don't know how you know you you don't want somebody who looks too old, either. Mm. Mm. Uh, but I agree with you there. I mean, it's the line that Ruth just read from Little Bo Peep. That that's a great line that she has. But the honest truth is, uh, for both her and Tom, they're. Like you said, they they do fine with their roles. They weren't given much to do, and they didn't do much with the roles. I would say they didn't really, you know, excel in the roles. So I don't know if other people had been in those roles would we think more highly of them. But I know that they're they're sort of there to move the plot along, but they don't at any point in time uh, enrapture you when they're on screen. Now, interesting. I'm just again. I'm, I'm on the Wikipedia page here, and I'm looking over the cast. And I don't know if this is some sort of official credit, if this is something that the people who put it on Wikipedia took upon themselves to say, or if this is something where, hey, we did this, and wink, wink to the audience. 
but one of the characters is Mickey Mouse as himself. <laughs> I don't remember seeing that in the credits cast list, but certainly they do make up that mouse to look like Mickey Mouse. <laughs> and I, you know, I honestly never made the connection that that's supposed to be Mickey Mouse. I just thought Mouse in Toyland. I don't know. I I always took it as obviously they were, you know, copying Mickey Mouse, but I would have never thought they would have said it because I would think that they would have been in some serious jeopardy of a lawsuit there. But uh, it's certainly the character looks just like Mickey Mouse looked back in those days, though obviously a chimpanzee made up to look like Mickey right. Mouse. <laughs> you could tell by how it moved. <laughs> so, and looking over the cast list, you know, the, most of the other parts are interchangeable to some extent. Mm-hmm. You know, people who played uh, like Zebedee Colt as Willie the Pig, you know, or Angel- <laughs> Angelo Rosito as Elmer the Pig. Although Elmer is my favorite of the three pigs, I do have to admit. Uh, but there, you know, there's nobody there who really, you know, stood out. Uh, mm. The next one who did kind of stand out to me as being well cast in the movie is an actor named Cupid Morgan, who played Old King Cole. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I thought he was very, very fitting for it. Yes. Apparently, he was a regular in silent movies and then in eventually, you know, these comedy shorts. Uh, it says uh, he appeared in 99 films from 1915 to 1936. Wow, wow. that's and a lot. He, and he was a frequent uh, contributor in Buster Keaton and Laurel and Hardy movies. Oh, nice. yeah, well, then I'm sure I've him. seen him before then. Right. <laughs> yeah, we've got, our, we've got our Laurel and Hardy collection and our Buster Keaton collection, so we've got him in there. Yeah, so next time, it's just, just another thing kind of to look for, and then you say, oh, yeah, th- you know, there he is. And that's a good point about these, like you're uh, saying, Paul, because this movie, it's it's Laurel and Hardy and Silas Barnaby, who's fantastic, but everyone else is basically just there to cause the interactions between them because they carry the whole film. And some of them do it better than others, and I guess a lot of them, it, you know, it was... Uh, not much of a part and they came in and they did what they needed to do with it and it serves the purpose of the film but it knows to let the others uh, stand out other than the ones we talked about i don't think there's anybody in the cast who particularly requires their own discussion i think everybody else is kind of just you know uh if this was a broadway play they're the ones who'd all come out together to take a bow right yeah right the ensemble yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, good point. You know, I don't remember. I I should have looked to see who played Santa Claus. And it's not like, I mean, Santa Claus has a really small role. So I uh, I didn't think to look up and see who it was. But I did like the actor that played Santa Claus because he seemed so true to the spirit of what Santa Claus should be. Because even when he learns that Stan got the order wrong and it's all messed up and the one soldier sort of goes on a rampage and destroys the little toy warehouse uh santa claus laughs through all of that you know he even gets knocked down and falls into a bass drum and he still laughs and i just sort of like that it's you know the toy maker gets all upset but santa claus is what he should be which he's full of the holiday spirit even when everything's going wrong so i I liked his little tiny role i mean it was just a cameo really but the actor did a nice job with it i agree He, he was kind of a charming santa claus and he had the look about him uh on Wikipedia, he's credited as Ferdinand, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, Munier, M-U-N-I-E-R. Oh. Uh, he does not have his own wiki page. 
It's Ferdinand Munier as Santa Claus, and then you can know, you can hyperlink Santa Claus and click on that. <laughs> but, but his his name, not so much. All right, so that's interesting. So, so well, he did a nice job in other, that role. <laughs> I don't know if he's got any other filmography to speak of. But yeah, I agree. I think he did do a very good job with the role, and I think he uh, he he had the, just the right spirit about him as, as that scene goes on. It's a small part, but again, like you said, he he kind of captured it. Now. I guess we'd be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about the music. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did talk about the uh, the march at the end, mm-hmm. which is probably not probably. There's no question about it. It's the most memorable piece of music in the uh, mm-hmm. in the movie. And again, I don't know what is from Victor Herbert's original operetta, or what is. Uh, or actually, it's, it says uh, operetta by Glenn Glenn McDonough and Alice. Anna Alice Chapin. I don't know why I thought it was Victor Herbert. Oh, music by Victor Herbert. There we go. So I assume that that march is from Victor Herbert. I don't know about the rest of the music. The music is credited to him, Frank Churchill, and Anne Ronnell. Hmm. But I would say the other memorable songs are the song Toyland that it opens with. Mm-hmm. And... What else do we have in there? There's uh, there's the song that uh, that uh, Tom Tom sings, Castle in Spain. Right, and, no- and there's never mind, Bo Peep. We will find your sheep. <laughs> right, that was fun. That's a fun scene where she's complaining about losing her sheep, and he says, "Why are you surprised? You lose them every week." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then there's go to sleep. Mm. That's the one in Bogeyland that he sings, right? Yeah. Right. I think then, most, uh, I, I don't know myself. I mean, I've never seen the, uh, obviously, the play. I, I know that it still gets performed a lot, but I think it's a 1970s sort of revival that gets um, usually done on stage now, which I think they changed a lot of the music. But I was under the impression that most of the songs were from the original operetta but i don't know myself that's just what i thought right i i would say, i think that's <laughs> correct i would say that of the songs the most memorable one besides the march is the Nevermind bo peep because uh, that gets the whole ensemble singing together and everything uh but the, you know the music is overall just kind of enjoyable nothing uh you know, nothing that I'm going to go out and pick up the soundtrack for necessarily, but enjoyable as I'm watching the movie. There's, there's not one scene in the movie where I think, oh, I want to fast forward through this part. Although as, as a young child, I would have fast forwarded to the march every time. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and then you would have rewound it and watched it over again. <laughs> and I seem to remember them showing on TV a version of the movie Babes in Toyland starring Ray Bolger. Oh, Interesting. Yeah, and I'd, I'd have to look that up because my, my memory may or may not be correct. I wonder. It's coming to me as we're talking. I don't remember. I know Disney made a version of the movie in the '60s, and I'm I'm sure I probably saw it, but it wasn't on perennially like this one was. So this is the one I know and love. But I wonder if you know maybe that was the Disney uh, '60s remake. I don't know. For me, the music is. I come to the movie as a Laurel and Hardy fan, and I love, I love Laurel and Hardy scenes, and I love the set pieces and the fantasy element. All those things are exciting to me. 
the the music just sort of like you said i wouldn't run out and buy the soundtrack the music isn't necessarily you know my cup of tea as far as my tastes in music but the the music serves its purpose for uh, advancing the plot when it needs to be but it's interesting i think that in when the movie used to be shown on television and they would have to edit it for length it was usually the songs that they would cut which i guess isn't surprising you keep laurel and hardy around as much as possible you don't want to cut them but i think mm-hmm. uh, i read that it would be the songs that they would cut often okay the uh and i yeah i think that's absolutely correct i don't mean to cut off your point uh but i just looked up while we while we were uh while you were making that point, I looked up the 1961 version of Babes in Toyland, which is the Walt Disney version. Okay. And it starred Ray Bolger as Barnaby. Oh. Tommy Sands as Tom Piper. Annette Funicello as Mary Contrary. Oh. Ah, interesting. Ed Wynn was the toy maker. Interesting. Uh, I'm just looking for other names I recognize, and I see Anne Gillian as Bo Peep. She must have been very young. Oh, yeah, she would have had to have been because she was sort of a popular in what the early 80s she must have been a kid then she yeah. let's see she was born in 1950 so she must have been 10 11 oh, years old 11 years old okay. so a much younger uh, version in that that movie that's interesting i'm sure i saw it as a kid but you know disney would sort of you know syndicate their movies much less often so i obviously didn't see that one regularly to get to know it yeah, according to the wikipedia page walt disney wanted this movie to kind of be a uh a, a, a version like their version of the wizard of oz mm. you know mm. in his quote or a disney executive's quote is it's like a disney cartoon only with live actors hmm. but sadly it doesn't uh I'm, I'm sure it doesn't hold up against the laurel and hardy version because <laughs> right it just didn't you know, it just doesn't have the same uh same uh, legs that that one does. Obviously, yeah. It does say that it's the first time Ray Bolger was ever cast as a villain in his career. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Uh, yeah, very, very interesting to see. You know how how this is a story that apparently well predates the movie that we're familiar with, but that this movie kind of took on a life of its own as the the version of it. Right. Definitely, you know, I mean, the Disney version would have been much more modern, but throughout the 70s when I was watching this, it was always this version that was on television every holiday season. And, of course, I loved it and still do. It was a delight to watch again. Now, according to Wikipedia, the critics' reviews were positive on this movie. It was New York Times called it an authentic children's entertainment and quite the merriest of its kind that Hollywood has turned loose on nation screens in a long time, <laughs> uh, so it, it was well, you know, critically well received. And again, I'm sticking with Wikipedia here. This is a holiday staple. This film was shown by many television stations in the United States during the Thanksgiving slash Christmas holiday season each year during the 1960s and 1970s, which mm. encompasses my childhood. Mine too. In, in New York City, it continues to run as of 2016 on WPIX as March of the Wooden Soldiers, airing on that station in the daytime on Thanksgiving Day and Christmas Day. It also, run, it also runs nationally on occasion on this TV. I don't have that station. I don't either. But mm. uh, 
But despite the fact that I own a DVD copy of this, I do find myself watching it when it's on WPIX every <laughs> oh. year on Thanksgiving. Oh, night. nice. Yeah, that's the nostalgia part of it again. It's different that way. I can understand that. We do. We, we have it on DVD as well, and it's, you know, a, a treasured copy to have and uh, you know, beautifully restored. It, it, they're from a 35-millimeter print. It does look gorgeous as far as, like you said, the special effects aren't spectacular for a B-movie made in 34, but the print is crisp and clear, really nice. What do you think of the colorization? Actually, I thought it was pretty good. I know it's actually been colorized twice. Once was in the 90s, I think, I read for VHS. And then they recolored it about 10 years ago for this DVD release uh, using digital technology. And it looked really good. You know, I'm used to the colorization they used to do on Laurel and Hardy shorts. A lot of those got colorized back in the 90s. And they look a little bit like ghosting because they didn't have the digital technology then that they do now. And so sometimes the colors wouldn't quite stay within the lines, if you could imagine them being colored that way. But this one I was pretty impressed with. It looked really good. The color seemed to hold up well. It looked like it could have been filmed in color. And and I'm, I'm a bit of a purist. I like films in as close to the original version as I can see them. But at the same time, I try to be a little bit pragmatic with the fact that if colorizing and if they do a good job of colorizing a film gets a new generation of people to try it, then that's important as well because they'll, there'll be a lot of people that will discover it and then they'll go back and look at it the way it was originally. So I'm, I'm a purist, but I'm a pra- pragmatic purist. <laughs> and I would say for Toyland, I think it's best in color because you would expect all the fairy tales and all the different mm. creatures and um, you know, tea houses and the shoe house and just all of that imagine- imaginative land to be in color. So I, I like the color aspect of it. I agree with what you're saying there because it gets a, gives it a little bit more of a feel of, we mentioned the Wizard of Oz, it feels a little bit like, you know, the Wizard of Oz village from the beginning of that film when you see it in color. At the same time, Ruth and I both sort of commented on it because when you see it in color and they're giving so many other things bright colors, but Mother Goose's hat was black, black. (laughs) so it made her look like a witch, because it's like she's got this this sort of nice colored costume on, but then her hat's dark black, and you're just Mm. like, oh, (laughs) she looks like a witch now. (laughs) Now, when it comes to colorization, and this is something I don't think I've, I don't think this topic has come up on this particular show ever. So it's, I think it's worth talking a little bit about. And it's, it's, you have an interesting perspective on it, and I think we're of a like mind once again. Mm. Um, if it's a movie where the director made use of the black and white to create a mood mm. or to, you know, to get a certain feel or a message across or something, and that's going to be lost in colorization, then I'm against it. Yeah. But if it's a movie where it's in black and white because that was the technology of the day and that adding color to it isn't going to ruin the message or, or, or ruin the, the feel, the sense that you're supposed to be getting at a given time, then quite frankly, I'm all for it. I have no problem with it as long as they do it in a manner that looks good. Uh, you know, you talked about in the, in the 80s and 90s when they colorized movies. I did find that they often because of the limitations of the technology, 
had a very pastel look about them. Mm-hmm. And I agree that that's not necessarily the best thing because it could almost take you out of the viewing experience because you're paying more attention to the colorization then. Mm-hmm. But the more time that goes by and the more that they perfect the technology, I really don't have a problem with it. I know last year I was watching uh, on CBS, they showed two episodes of the old Dick Van Dyke show that they colorized. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you if you guys saw that at all. I didn't. Uh, we love the Dick Van Dyke show. We have that on DVD, but no, I didn't see them on TV colorized. Yeah, they did two episodes. The one when uh, when Laura accidentally lets it slip that Alan Brady has a hairpiece. <laughs> and the one where they think they might have brought the wrong baby home from the hospital. <laughs> yes. And they colorized those two episodes, and I thought they did a really good job of colorizing them to the point where it didn't it didn't look like a current show because the sets the characters you know the outfits they were wearing everything didn't fit current times but it looked as if it was a color show from the 1960s or early 1970s nice uh, again paul you and i think so much alike because i agree you said in your description of colorization almost exactly word for word the same things I've said about it in the past as well. Like I was talking a, a little bit a while ago about, you know, uh, being a, a purist but a pragmatic purist. But I've said almost the same phrase that you were saying about if a movie was intentionally made in black and white by the director, then you shouldn't touch it. And I think of immediately something like Psycho by Alfred Hitchcock. He could have easily made that movie in color. He chose not to. And... But at the same time, I agree completely if it's made in black and white because it was a B-movie and they didn't get a big enough budget for it, then sure, I can understand. At the same time, I know that a lot of film noirs were made you know, as B-movies and you got beautiful directors and cinematographers that made the most of the shadows and light and you sort of don't want to see those colorized. But at the same time, I don't see a problem if it you know, brings in a new audience, and as long as they continue to preserve the original, I just sort of try to be a bit of a pragmatic uh, pragmatist about it. And I think of, just like you were talking about, you look at shows like I Dream of Jeannie as a favorite of ours that we like, mm-hmm. and the first season of it's in black and white, but they colorized it so it would fit with the rest of the show. Uh, the Wild Wild West is a favorite show of ours, the first season's in black and white. So, you know, things like that are perfect to colorize so that you can you know, have it match the whole rest of the series. And um, a lot of movies like this, I think it's fine that it's colorized, and they did a good job with it. I was pleased with it. And there is, you know, for better or for worse, there's an audience today that isn't going to give a black and white movie the same opportunity that it's going to give a color movie. Right. And that, you know, that's not necessarily a good reflection on the audience, but it's mm-hmm. just a fact. Right. So if a movie like this, which I consider to be an all-time classic, again, I'm giving away my review very early here. <laughs> but if, 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 if a movie like this is going to get viewed by more people, if people like my two children who are, you know, 17 and 20 years old are going to watch it because it's in color where they might shun it if it's in black and white, then more power to them. <laughs> colorize more of these movies because I want them getting out there to these audiences. Right. Uh, that's me exactly. So, I think we've probably gotten to a point where I can ask you, Darren, Ruth, in whatever order you'd like to answer me, uh, 
is this Jaws? But let me give you the Jaws scale again, even though I know you guys know it. Uh, somebody <laughs> listening may not. Jaws is an all-time classic. One of the greatest movies, one of the best, you know, very, very few flaws, if any, and certainly any flaws in it don't take away from your viewing pleasure in the movie. Uh, Jaws 2, a very good movie, worthy of repeated viewings, but just not at that all-time classic level. Jaws 3, watchable, enjoyable, but nothing special, and Jaws 4 is bad. Now, I already know <laughs> we're not Jaws 4 on this one, but you guys, tell me where you land on this. <laughs> That's so funny. We actually were talking about this. We took a nice walk this afternoon. It was a beautiful day, and we actually discussed this, and we were back and forth. Is this Jaws or is this Jaws 2? And for me, I was going waffling back and forth because I love Laurel and Hardy, and I know that there are other Laurel and Hardy movies that I would rank above this one, so that makes me lean toward Jaws 2. But at the same time, this movie has the wonderful nostalgia factors of me watching it when I was a kid and just sort of the fun atmosphere of it and those sorts of things, you know, bring it back up to, yeah, it's Jaws. So I just, I was going back and forth and back and forth, and I've just enjoyed talking about this movie so much that I know that it's Jaws because it was just fun to talk about with the two of you for an hour. <laughs> I have enjoyed the conversation so much as well. And I did have a good time, like Darren was saying, when we were walking around this afternoon and just kind of thinking through the movie about, you know, the best parts and what makes this movie a classic, you know, that really stands out the test of decades to think of how long ago this was made. Mm. Um, I would say probably because I'm missing the nostalgia factor that I was the one that would come in a little bit lower toward the Jaws 2 rating and that the music didn't res resonate with me as much. So that's why I was leaning more more toward the two. So we were going back and forth, back and forth. So it was difficult, difficult to land on that <laughs> very good so, you explained so where, that where well did, where did you land though did you land on jaws I'm, or jaws 2 i'm gonna i'm gonna say jaws 2 for me personally okay i, I can't argue despite <laughs> the fact that i do slightly disagree with you because <laughs> uh, for me this is that's what so, makes you know. the show so good is we get to everybody's opinions and see see what your preferences are don't worry uh, paul i'll take care of her later <laughs> <laughs> but uh for me, you know how uh, as as geeks, uh, one one I think one of the things we do is if you find yourself sitting and you're bored, you start making a list, uh, you know, just to kind of kill some time. And and there's been many times where I found myself, let me list my twenty top movies of all time, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that list is is always changing. The order of the movies on it is changing. Sometimes the movies on it will change. This movie is usually on that list somewhere. Uh, for me, for me, this this is just one of my all-time favorites. And again, I can pull myself back a little bit and say, as a critic, that Laurel and Hardy probably have a couple of movies that are better than this. Just as movie events or movie creations, where. Just as a critic, I can look at it and say that's a better movie. It's you know maybe better directed, maybe a, a stronger, tighter script to it, uh, maybe even some better performances. But there's no Laurel and Hardy movie that I'd rather see than this one. So for me, this is Jaws. This is 
just to me one of the, one of the all time classics, one of the greatest movies of all time, in my personal opinion. I understand that there's room for people to disagree, and uh, <laughs> and that's fine. But for me, Ruth is going to feel very bad about disagreeing for a long time. <laughs> I don't think so. I think I, I I can't tell you how much how strongly I feel, and I've said it so many times between this show and Back to the Bins. I can't tell you how strongly I feel that art, whether it's movies, comic books, music, any form of art, uh, is such a subjective thing that I am very bothered by anybody who forces their own opinions on others mm. or anybody who make, who belittles somebody else's opinions. It really does. It's, it's a personal sore spot for me. Uh, and, and it's something that's come up more often because of the, uh, the social media aspect of things. Mm. Mm-hmm. So the fact that Ruth liked this movie but doesn't like it quite as much as me I don't think that's going to stop us from being friends. <laughs> I don't Glad think so either. <laughs> she's she's laughing about it all at the, at the same time. I know she's sitting there going, "Ah, it was hard for her to to say that." I could see her struggling, but that's okay. <laughs> we we and I just want to say, Paul, I remember you saying those sorts of things back when you uh, and the guys were doing the uh, top 100 movies countdown. Oh, which yes. I loved all of those. That and it was, was that amazing. same sort of thing that you were explaining in that, uh, you know, in each episode, you would make sure that you sort of hark back to the fact that, you know, you may not agree, but that doesn't diminish anyone else's opinion. And that's the reason we love your show, because that's the way it comes off. Uh, you, uh, you celebrate, you know, the best of things and everything can't be Jaws. But everything can be enjoyed to uh, to a certain level, and uh, I I love your show for that reason, and love coming on to talk about this. And Ruth saying it's Jaws too is just really funny, and uh, <laughs> it's because she doesn't have the nostalgia uh, touch point that you and I have. I can tell she saw it and, for the yeah, first time when she was twentyish. Nostalgia is a factor. <laughs> <laughs> but I, 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 I think we, that for a second. But I can tell we all love Laurel and Hardy so much that it's a pleasure to get to talk about them for an hour. Oh, this was a lot of fun. Really did enjoy learning so much in depth about some of the different actors and mm-hmm. getting to talk about it in depth. Yeah. yeah for, for me for me as well and I, I really appreciate you two making the time to come on with me. And we have some other things in the pipeline planned. Uh not only another episode of uh, Is It Yours that we're going to record very shortly, but also uh, we're talking about doing a Back to the Bins episode uh, that should be... It's My free time has been a little tight lately because I have a book that Darren and Ruth were very that very generously sent to me uh, <laughs> that I need to sit down and read, and I'm very much looking forward to reading it. And once I do, we're going we're gonna to do an episode together on that. So... You're going to be hearing more of them if, if you uh, listen to my stuff, but why don't you guys tell them where they can find you otherwise? Oh, okay, thanks. Well, thank you very much, Paul. We do have three podcasts ourselves on the Rad Adventures Network, which is short for Ruth and Darren. And Trekker Talk is the one that covers the adventures of 23rd Century Bounty Hunter Mercy St. Clair, and that's from the sci-fi comic Trekker by writer and artist Ron Randall. And, and I think that might be the one Paul's alluding to. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's the one, which we I, also I do. <laughs> very much appreciated you sending me that. 
We also do Xenozoic Xenophiles. That's about the Cadillacs and Dinosaurs series Xenozoic Tales by writer and artist Mark Schultz, where we cover that uh, series. And also we have interviews with him. We're actually getting ready to record another interview with him very soon. And there's Warlord Worlds, and that's a podcast about the many comics from writer and artist Mike Grell. So there we get to talk about the Warlord, John Sable, Green Arrow, and other titles over time. So yeah, you can follow us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Yeah, we're out and there. And just, just to <laughs> clarify a little, if someone were to subscribe to Rad Adventures, mm. they're going to get all of them, correct? Excellent. Yes. Thank you, Paul. You're our marketing expert. So yes, <laughs> subscribe to Rad Adventures and you'll get every episode of all three shows. <laughs> I think that's the way to go. And I would recommend that to <laughs> thank everybody. You. <laughs> it's, once again, it's been a pleasure having you guys on. I want to thank you so much for coming on. Uh, and uh, I guess everybody else will say goodbye and see you in two weeks. All right. Bye-bye. Bye, Paul.